Okay, it was a one. A one. Okay, Audrey, the topic you and your die have chosen for us to discuss today is how much and what kind of preparation do you do before running a role-playing game? Hello, and welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about running role-playing games. Each episode, our guest rolls on our table of topics, and we discuss the result. My name is Chris Salzman. I'm Andy Rao. And this week, we're joined by special guest, Audrey Huggett. Hi! Welcome! I'm happy to be here. So I am going to ask you about the, the die that you just rolled. <laughs> so <laughs> it looked pretty massive from what, what we, we saw of it. I guess, where did you get that? It was a Christmas gift for my brother. <laughs> he uh, got me a giant dice set for Christmas one year. This is my, like, dramatic moment dice, right? Yeah. Like, something big is happening, so you have to pull out the big dice. <laughs> is it one of those metal ones that, like, actually dents your table when you roll? Uh... No, it's it's definitely plastic. It looks like a Chessex dice, but it's giant, so I don't know where he got it from. I think it had a wrapper, but I was so excited about it, I was immediately like, ah! And, like, <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> Um, yeah, so you got connected with us through um, the the library. So a librarian there reached out and said, "Hey, you need to talk with Audrey. Like, she's super great." And so you you've written a, actually a couple of games for the library. Yeah, that that's correct? right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about those? Sure. So yeah. the library games kind of started as me thinking like, how can we? Okay. So this is also like a secret. So, audience, okay. never tell anyone about this. Mm -hmm. The idea, the genesis for my programs is like, how can we do role playing in the library? But I don't like saying, I don't like putting role playing on my like program descriptions because I think there are still people out there who immediately go like, role playing is for nerds or whatever. I don't like calling them role playing games, but they are definitely like absolutely out of an attempt for me to be like, how do we get this into the library? The library I work for. The Ann Arbor District Library is a interesting library because we don't take we don't do reservations like basically ever. So our programs can have anywhere from like five to like five hundred people show up. So like a big hmm. part of these pro this planning this was figuring out how I could like build a program for people that would scale. Uh, so the first one I came up with was a murder mystery because like the role that people inha are inhabiting when they come into it is like detective, and it's a concept that people get. If I say, like, it's like a murder mystery party, like, you kind of know what that means. So I wrote a murder mystery for the library and basically made this, like, case file. You could pick it up the week before the program. You could read all the interviews with all the suspects. And then people on the day of showed up and you had an hour as an audience to, like, basically have a panel Q&A with all the suspects which were my coworkers and prepping them was actually really similar to prepping players for role playing because yeah. like <laughs> you could there's no way to like predict what questions people were going to ask so when i was like prepping my coworkers i was like here's your character like here's your motivations like and did they get into it yeah they totally did the library is a really amazing place to work one of my players from my game was one of she actually ended up being the murderer um so she knew how to role play we have an amazing story team. So, like, everyone just, like, like they killed it. And they did so good. They came up with stuff that I never would have thought of. It was, like, so cool to watch. I was also in the back the entire time being like, ah, because I was just yeah. watching it happen. <laughs> being like, hopefully this works. Was the entire audience all trying to solve it at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. then so how was many like, people did you have then? We had 120. Okay. Um, wow. <laughs> 
That's frightening. <laughs> yeah. I was in the back, like, literally freaking out the entire time. Uh, especially because, like, the first question that got asked, the mer- it was, like, the solution. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, ah, they can't ask that question yet! But it was, like, a family, and the kids, like, talked themselves out of it, I think, which was a bummer. But So after the panel, there's, like, a, a half an hour break, and people had, like, ten minutes to submit their answer. And then on a Google form, and then I, like, looked at all the answers, or, like, pulled out all the people that had got the right answer, and then we randomly selected winners. We had the little scene where we, like, announced who the murderer was. So that was the murder at Raccoon Ranch. <laughs> That's super fun. Did you Do you think you'll ever get to run that again? Is that going to be, like, a yearly thing? Yeah, or? so this October, the Saturday before Halloween, uh, is the next one. It doesn't have a title yet, because I haven't written it yet. Both of my programs are going to be yearly things. After Raccoon Ranch, I basically went to my boss and was like, hey, this was actually a beta program for this thing I actually want to do. <laughs> and look how well it worked. <laughs> and yeah. he was like, okay, <laughs> like, let's see what you can do. So in the spring, I ran a program called the In-Between Quest for the Keystone. This program is like way more intense and involved. And that's my like, it's my like fantasy program. And basically like the homework or like pre- whatever thing that people pick up is the Explorer Journal. It explains what the in-between is. And the in-between is like this world that exists kind of in between all the other worlds that can possibly exist where like people fall into, sometimes they leave, sometimes they stay. And like the thing holding it in place gets like disappeared. So Mm. it's starting to like crash into the Mm. library. There, There are two options. You can make either another keystone, restore it to what it is, or you can make a through line and like it will turn into something else. So when people showed up, there were six different like little things they could do to get knowledge tokens. Once they got mm-hmm. enough knowledge tokens, they could buy these magic words that they then had to like solve the thing for, which gave yeah. them the words to create a through line or keystone. And then we had like another thing where people submitted what they put their magic words in, and then we announced what the solution was, and people chose to make a keystone. So the in between is like put back together. Um, and we had, like, you know, a big scene revealing it. The story I'm making next spring is, like, based off of that and, like, what... So now we're at this place and moving forward, oh, the story no. moves forward. That's super cool. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll drop links into the, the actual, like, the PDFs that you oh, yeah. ended up. But the the one for the, the Quest for the Keystone, I mean, this just reminds me of, like, Mist. Yeah. Totally. Like, I don't yeah, know absolutely. if you were looking at that at all, but... It's definitely an inspiration because me and my dad played that when I was little, and mm-hmm. so, like, it was, like, one of my... It was, like, such a good memory and, like, one of my... It's, like, the only video game I've ever really played. Yeah, you and you and a lot of other people, honestly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, is this all original stuff that you are coming up with on the fly? Are you basing the program on a model that somebody else has tried? Or are you just... Nope. Are you spearheading this? I'm just making it up. That is really <laughs> impressive. It sounds really elaborate. Like, Thank terrifyingly you. elaborate, honestly. Yeah, the keystone, I was able to, I had way more composure for the keystone because I was like in character, being observer kind of character. But like definitely in the murder mystery, if you like, if someone had like looked to the back of the audience, they would have seen me in the back just gripping my face, like freaking <laughs> out the, the literally the entire time. One of my coworkers was there and I was like, <laughs> just like hanging onto her arm the entire time. And she's like, You're, yeah. it's fine. You know, something you mentioned at the beginning, a little thing, was that 
was how you introduced the idea, how you sold people on the idea by uh, using murder mysteries as a common reference. You can say mm-hmm. it's it's like a, it's kind of like a murder mystery. You know, it just makes me think of all of the times that I've been called to answer the question of like, what is this D and D thing, or what is this yeah. role playing thing? And you say, oh, it's like cops and robbers, or it's like <laughs> make believe, but there's some rules or things like that. But yeah, or maybe like it's like World of Warcraft, except it's not at a computer and. I don't know. That murder mystery is actually kind of a good, uh, a yeah. good thing to think about using. Yeah, that was my. That was honestly kind of my segue into role playing. I, I'd written a murder mystery for some friends. That was just really fun, but it's also so much work. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So like running role playing games in, in some ways are almost easier than than doing sort of all that prep work because like the the murder mystery sort of hangs on that that one revelation Mm -hmm. and that's really got to get sold well whereas with Mm -hmm. role-playing like you can kind of you know have many different resolutions in there yeah yeah you can fudge it a little more with role-playing with this murder mystery i was like they have to be able to figure it out right yeah yeah so i guess what what's your interest in i guess like i mean obviously like games are fun right but Mm -hmm. like why do you think that it's important that the library or libraries do things like this so i guess it kind of like is part of why I think role-playing games are important in general. Like, there's a couple different reasons. Like, an obvious one being, like, it's imaginative, it's a storytelling experience. But I think on a more important level, like, role-playing games give you... Like, they give you a space to, like, try new things, and in particular, they give you, like, a space fail that often feels safe because, like, even if your character dies... It's just a character, and you can make a new one, and, like, you can make a story out of the death. Like, that becomes, like, a thing itself, too, Mm -hmm. often. I think that, like, role-playing games are, like, really important because they give you a safe space to just experiment with different ways of being in the world. Like, it just interacting with people. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it was something I thought was important to bring to the library because that's... it's, It's on a smaller scale because you can't get the intimacy that you get with, like, five other people or three other people but it still is a place to like experience failure (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. which sounds really weird no not at all that's fascinating actually has running games and running programs like this at the library has it affected the way you either run games or you play games when it's just you and your friends sitting down to play D &D and let's go hit up the dungeon so i i am just now preparing to run a one-shot sort of setting so i haven't run a full game since doing these programs but in terms of playing, since I've, like, articulated the thought of failure to myself, I think I'm more thoughtful about, like, the things I'm experimenting with with my characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, the other thing that's, like, kind of unrelated is I work with a lot of talented people and, like, the level of commitment they brought to their characters was super inspiring. So, like, I feel like I'm a better role player for having watched my, like, coworkers do this thing for me. Yeah, Absolutely. So, hey, shall we uh, skip into the topic that we rolled and see where that takes us? So uh, the topic that Audrey rolled was how much preparation and what type of preparation or what preparation at all do you do when you're getting ready to run a game? And this was a topic that was introduced several episodes ago by John Corey, I believe. Why don't we start with Chris? Why don't you give us a little snapshot of what you do to prepare to run a game session? 
This is a very timely question. So as I mentioned, I think in the last episode, I'm transitioning into a new campaign. Well, same campaign, but we're transitioning into Horde of the Dragon Queen. So it's a new book, essentially, right? A new new module. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of faced with the, like, how should I prep appropriately? And I guess what I've learned thus far is that I, I have a tendency to over-prep to the point where things don't go my way, then I'm not really sure what else to do. <laughs> so with this one, I'm going to try to just have, like, a better... A better idea of sort of the, the broad brushstrokes of sort of the whole kind of campaign, you know, start to finish and then just kind of let things happen a bit more. So treat it a bit like a sandbox, but also have some rails that I can kind of jump back to as needed. That said, so for individual sessions, when we actually meet, my prep is pretty light. I actually kind of shift a lot of the like, hey, what happened last week sort of prep into the session itself. So I, I ask the players to sort of recap it for me. Um, and then from there, we just sort of, you know, we go off, you know, so I might have a couple notes for the most part. I try to not do too much prep um, just because I'll get too into my head, I think, <laughs> or I do get into my head when I do that. Yeah. What about you, Andy? Well, the, my main goal in preparing is to uh, identify the stuff that will uh, bog down the game or trip me up and try and take care of it in advance. So usually that is rules stuff. Uh, I'm not the biggest rules rememberer, uh, despite, you know, GMing for years. Uh, but I really hate having to stop the game and look something up in a rule book. If I'm running a published adventure, I hate having to flip through it to find the stats for something or to, re to refresh my memory about what treasure was in such and such a room. So I do a lot of writing uh, because that's how my brain remember stuff. So I will just go through the exercise of writing down any rule stuff that I think I'm likely to need that I don't have internalized. So that's monster powers and spells. And uh, if I know characters are likely to use certain powers or certain moves in combat that I don't know super well, uh, like whatever, the grappling rules or something, I'll I will reread and jot those down on a, a note card or something. And I don't do a whole lot of prep centered around like the story because I'm usually okay at rolling with what the players do story-wise. I just want to be sure that whatever they do, I am not the person pausing the game to look up the rules. So that means a lot of different things depending on what game I'm going to be running and um, what the story is. Do you find that when you actually sit and write down sort of those mechanics and things like that, that then you don't actually need the reference? Yeah, but it, it, it helps my confidence. You know, it just helps me feel a little bit more prepared. Even if I don't ever have to check whatever the spell resistance DC of something, I know that it's there, you know, and uh, I tend to prepare more than is probably needed in that respect. But if you encounter sort of a mechanical question with the rules, will you, will you ever just sort of make up something on the fly or do you always have to have a reference that you go back to? Yes. So because of this, because of my irrational fear of stopping the game while I flip through the, the index of a 350 page book, <laughs> I, I much prefer to just make something up on the fly rather than stop and look it up. It's, it's usually not too hard in D and D because it uses a basic system for resolving most problem most challenges right so i just come up with a quick variant on it and we move on but i don't like being inconsistent over time so if that does happen i'll make a mental note of it and then the next game i will come with the real rule prepared and i might occasionally have to say okay last last week we did the grapple rules this way but i checked and it's actually this other way so i don't want people to feel like 
the rules are changing on them, mm-hmm. you know, on my whim from game to game. Mm-hmm. So, Audrey, when you have to play a game with less than 120 people, <laughs> how do you prep? Yeah, one of the topics on our uh, table of topics, by the way, is like playing, preparing games for large groups of players. And I think you would, <laughs> you are the undisputed master of that particular topic. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, our low estimate for the in-between was 140, so... <laughs> yeah okay just breaking a little bit um <laughs> yeah. I, I i kept my games at six players so <laughs> it's fair it's, yeah. yeah i mean people get impressed when like gygax ran games for like you know 15 people like yeah. whoa <laughs> that has been surpassed everyone <laughs> yeah so when i'm running for a smaller group of people i guess it's like an answer that i'm still finding the right thing for me about mm-hmm. i've only been dming for like three years three years now. And when I started DMing, it was the first time I played Dungeons and Dragons. So I was like actively learning the rules as I DMed. (laughs) Yeah. For that particular campaign, it went for like a year and a half. And I was like doing all sorts of crazy, like different types of prepping because I was trying to figure out what worked for me. I ended up getting really in my, like the sessions where I prepped a lot, especially from a book, I would get really in my head about it. Moving forward... I think what I will prefer to do is, like, spend a lot of time on, like, the situation of the world. And then, like, as the players move through it, if I'm prepping anything, it's, like, stuff that's happening off stage. And then, like, Mm -hmm. letting the players interact with the world as it comes. So not as much prepping besides, like, probably some loot tables. And I should probably be better. I'm not... I. I'm really bad at prepping monsters. <laughs> yeah. So I'm always like, what can they do? And <laughs> yeah. not utilizing them super well. Have you read the, have you read Dungeon World at all? That no, rule set? I haven't. Dungeon World might be something to look at if you want to do, <clears throat> do some of that like world state sort of stuff um, oh, okay. instead of having specific scenarios. Cause there's a, yeah, there, there's a lot of emphasis put on like you, you create sort of these fronts in the world that are, up to something they have kind of goals of their own and they can kind of just run in the background oh cool but yeah it's it's kind of an interesting way of of approaching it because i think D is very much focused on the like you have a written module or you yeah. write it out yourself and then everything's sort of written out whereas with dungeon world and some other games it can be a little bit more fuzzy For sure. <laughs> to say the least have you guys ever run a game with zero prep and a game that's not intended to be run with zero prep. I definitely, I think there was one, there was like one session of my campaign. I don't remember what happened, but I had, I like basically went in cold. And actually I think it ended up going super well because it was, this is why I'm switching to prepping like this. It was a module that I had written myself. So like mm-hmm. I had all the background knowledge in my brain and like knew kind of like what was going on. My characters were at that point were like level six-ish. So no one was like, at no one's abilities were like crazy like no one had like back flipping and like fireballing <laughs> at the same time sort of abilities yet <laughs> yeah. uh, so it was like much easier to manage it actually went super well i think because i had no like preset expectations i think part of what i had what over prepping would like trip me up on was i would like get this idea of how things needed to go and then when the characters didn't do that you kind of react by like trying to like clamp down or i reacted by clamping down and trying to control things so when i didn't prep i think it actually ended up being super fun i ran a session one time where only like two players could make it and we almost canceled and i was like well let's just meet and we'll we'll do something 
And so we did a flashback and it ended up being great. Like I didn't have anything prepared. So I just kept asking them questions like oh, over cool. and over. So it was in D and D right. And so we're just asking questions. You develop this whole kind of flashback scene that they both participated in. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being like, I think one of my highlights of the past probably year of gaming, um, just looking back on that and it created some interesting story hooks for the rest of the campaign and like just all this stuff came out of it. But it was only by kind of saying yes to the like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's just see. <laughs> yeah. And the guy who added this, this to the table, John Corey, like this is just how he runs games. Like he doesn't do any prep. You know, he, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He does uh he does a game, which I'm really hoping to get to play in at some point where he just does a Mad Lib at the start of the, the game oh, and then wow. they just take it from there. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's very impressive. So both of you guys mentioned in your answers that it was like a positive experience when you had to run with zero prep. Mm-hmm. I mean, did it cross your mind to think, hey, like from now on, I'm just not going to prep. Like this is the way, this is the way to do it. Or did you think, well, that was great, but never again. I did think that. And for like, I did way less prep for the rest of that like segment of the campaign. But then we segued into Curse of Strahd. And because it was from a module, I put this like weird pressure on myself. I was like, I need to memorize the entire 300-page book to run this properly, (laughs) Um, which feels like a very beginner mistake, (laughs) which is probably what it was. (laughs) Because, like, I had run Minds of Fandelver, which is, like, nice and little, very manageable, and then, like, Strahd, I was like, I need to know everything, Uh, and you can't. (laughs) So I, like, did the right thing and then immediately unlearned it. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I contemplated it briefly. I think... So the main game that I run is this lunch game, and I I feel a certain amount of pressure to make sure that that's uh, enjoyable for everybody. Mm. And to me, the way to do that is to just, you know, have a module. But, I mean, like, there's no real reason, I guess, why we couldn't. You know, so I've experimented a little bit with this with with one-shots and things like that. Um, And then Andy and I are playing a Blades in the Dark game here and there. And that I'm trying to keep as low prep as possible. And that's just totally like whatever they're going to do, I'll just react to it and we'll, we'll sort of see what happens. That system is designed around that, that philosophy. Whereas D and D I feel like just isn't cause like you mentioned, Audrey, like getting monsters and stuff built up. Like yeah. I can't imagine how I would just roll with that for a whole campaign. I guess you'd come up with tools and tricks, but yeah, well in the module or not module, but like the campaign I had written was actually a murder mystery sort of, it was based on Jack the Ripper and there was like a cult involved, but like there was a lot of like the players having to like figure out what was going on. So it was more role playing heavy than like monster heavy. I knew what the end monster was. So like there were only a couple that they were going to interact with. So I didn't have to like have them this whole compendium of monsters memorized. You know, one thing that, uh, playing Blades of the Dark with you, Chris, and some others has helped me to understand is that part of reducing your own prep is being confident that your players are going to step forward and help pick up the slack if you're not uh, filling in all of the details. And that's a really liberating thing to play with a group of players that is proactive. And I, I think most players are like are like this. They want to step up and participate and kind of drive the story and there's something kind of refreshing in the idea of like i'm gonna worry a little less about preparing everything and i'm gonna mm-hmm. i'm gonna let my players take the reins a little bit more and see where they take mm-hmm. it yeah there was a podcast that you had mentioned to me andy uh neo scum i think mm-hmm. and in that there there is a gm i think it looks like i don't quite know <laughs> right now but they were they're playing um Shadowrun, I think. Oh, yes, Shadowrun. They're playing Shadowrun, and uh, the players actually also play some of the NPCs. 
mm. in the game. So like as they're as they're sort of talking and stuff, like an NPC will show up and like one of the players just sort of takes that NPC mm. and does their character in an NPC. And that to me just seems really like kind of a fascinating thing because there's at least in D and D you get very into the like you have the dungeon master, you have the players, and there's a, like a clear separation. But there's no real reason why like a player couldn't run that shopkeeper like Mm -hmm. that shopkeeper might not have any special knowledge about the the story that they can't possibly know you know but they could interact with other players so that's that's something that i I think i want to try at some point is to yeah hand over control of some of those kind of side characters to players as well yeah that's a really interesting idea and i think it's like scary for the same reason why that you would want to like have all the prep which is like you're giving mm-hmm. control of the thing to someone else <laughs> like what if they're better at it than you are <laughs> yeah or what if they're like we pile our merchandise in the middle of the room and light it on fire <laughs> like, <laughs> like probably they won't do that but who knows <laughs> depends on your players i guess you got to know them <laughs> yeah there's a famous like it's not an urban legend cuz it's a it's a true story but if you yeah, if you poke around on the internet, you'll find this account of a uh, first edition Warhammer campaign, a war- the Warhammer uh, fantasy role-playing game, where uh, the players are supposed to be investigating this Byzantine, you know, this labyrinth of corruption and betrayal. And instead, at the first town, they buy a barge and they set up this merchant job just transporting goods from city to city (laughs) and you know you when you you let your players uh take the reins a little bit more you do run the risk of those uh those ludicrous moments like that but those are also make for really fun experiences too so for the end of that campaign there was like everyone had to go down into the sewers to like route out the snake people scourge they managed to persuade the City Watch to join them. So I like gay I made like City Watch characters and then was like, you all have to also play your oh, NPC yeah. buddy in this fight because I'm not making combat something where it's like me fighting myself for literally half of it. That sounds yeah. terrible. Yeah. And one of the characters that I made, his name was Sean Onions, and my players became obsessed with Sean Onions. He was he name. was gonna get married to Fiona what was her last name? It was like Fiona Radish, they were like, they became <laughs> invested in him making it out alive to the point where they used a healing potion on him when he went down so that yeah. he could make it to his wedding <laughs> when they escaped the sewer. Uh, they made up a whole backstory for this guy. They did not care anything about any of the other people. They're like, they're fine. But like Sean Onions was like, their guy. <laughs> So when you guys uh, were starting GMing, how did you learn how to prepare for a game? Like, what I mean by that is, did you, had you watched somebody else GMing and did you, did you learn from them? Like, here's what I do to get a game ready. Or were you just reading straight out of the, whatever, the Dungeon Master's Guide of what to do or, or winging it? Like, how did you guys figure out, you know, how did you come to the place where you are now? There's a a guy on YouTube, Matt Coville, who does a a series. he's so good. Sorry. Yeah, he does a series of videos about running the game. And those were really helpful, I think, in the beginning for me mm-hmm. to watch some of that. But I think also, Andy, we could probably dig through our emails and you could probably get like the, the late night like ramblings from me <laughs> trying to put together my yeah. first session, asking you asking you questions about like super basic stuff. Yeah, and I, I don't know. Like, it's weird because I hadn't really played too many like, 
games, and I actually had never played D&D before I played D&D. I played Pathfinder, you know, like once or twice or so, you know, so I didn't really have a model to go after other than sort of a, a general sense of a couple things I wanted to accomplish at the table. Um, but other than that, it was just like trying to prep as much as possible, and then you, you hit that first session and realize that you get through like one-tenth of it, if that. When I was starting GMing, it was back in the day, and there, there was an attitude about GMs or, uh, that was at least articulated differently than games do today, and it tended to, to take the GMing role, I, I guess, I don't want to say more seriously, because we take GMing seriously today, but to, to put more responsibility on the GM personally for making sure the game ran smoothly than you might find in a game today where there's a little bit more expectation that it's that everybody is participating equally so yeah i went through a while of way over preparing because that's what the book said i had to do and the book also said that it was my fault if (laughs) things went awry and uh it took quite a while because i was the only person i knew who uh gm took quite a while for me to realize like yeah it's actually it's actually okay if i don't know all of this stuff going in how about you, Audrey? How did you uh, how did you figure this out? So the role playing game I played before D anD played a campaign in GURPS in college, and I was a super nerd. So I played with two of my college professors and like two other students. <laughs> the benefits of going to a small college. Uh, and <laughs> okay. Ian was a great DM, and so like I knew it could be done, but like I didn't. It didn't occur to me to ask him for help four years later when I started being a GM. So the internet is who I turned to. So that's how I found Matt Colwell. He had like really recently started his video series. So I I caught up really fast. There's a lot of information, but it was also kind of overwhelming. A lot of it was also just like trial and error on my own, at least initially. And then the other thing that I, that like I stumbled into when I became a GM was our local game shop uh, where I hit it up with one of the employees and we became friends because basically I would come in and find him and be like, this is how my campaign is going. And he would tell me about his campaign. Yeah. Um, so then we started meeting up and we call with like another friend and we called it DM therapy. So we'd like get together and like talk about what was going on in our campaign. And like, that's amazing. <laughs> and it was, we did it. We only did it a couple of times, but it was super helpful to like talk to other people. The same thing started happening to me uh, where I would like get in my head and be like, it's my responsibility for everyone to have a good time even though the internet said otherwise, people around me said otherwise, but it was like still helpful to be able to like talk to someone else who was like, yeah, people sometimes just get on their phone. It's okay. So how, how much, how much preparation do you guys do? Would you say for a typical, you've got game night coming up and you're going to be playing for like three to five hours or something. How much time do you guys spend getting ready for that? So I think this answer is going to change with my campaign coming up because I'm writing it. I've found that what works for me, I think like kind of what I mentioned earlier is like making the whole world and then like letting it go. And once I put that in initial front loaded, I built the thing time in, I don't have to prep right beforehand as much. And when I was doing that for the snake cult campaign, I could get away with like half an hour to an hour of prep. And it was like fine. And it was just me like going over like, probably where they would go and then like just making sure I didn't need to like look at monster stats or something before. Yeah. So for prep for me, you know, so with the lunch game that I run prep is really honestly like 10 or 15 minutes beforehand. Um, just making sure I have sort of everything, everything in hand and then just hit the ground running for the blades in the dark game. It's probably going to be the same, like 15 to 30 minutes. Like I kind of do, 
I do a lot of prep at the front, thinking through things and getting things set up and making sure the kind of the players are the right players for whatever we're doing. And then from there, we can kind of take it, take it and run. I guess another piece of that, you know, so I've run one shots and with one shots, I will prep a lot more for those than I will for a typical session. I do feel like a strong sense of this has to be worth it for the people who are playing in a one shot. Whereas with a campaign, it's like you can rely on them to sort of pick up the slack here and there. But if I'm going to invite a bunch of people who are playing one game for three hours and we might never play ever again, it's like, it's got to be, it's got to be good. That might be for a three hour session. That might be a five to 10 hour prep. I've found that uh, more of my prep time in the last couple of years is taken up with preparing things like um, maps and stuff for the players and picking out miniatures or printing out little, you know, standy, printing out NPC photos, you know, things like that. It's, I, I still do plenty of the, what are, let's get the goblin stats written down, but a little less of that and a little bit more, what can I do so that, you know, this is a visually compelling experience as well um do you guys do much stuff like that in your game not a ton i'm starting to use miniatures more mostly because my players want to use them so i think at some point i'm gonna have to start you know busting out the paint set and painting little classic figurines (laughs) but for now i'm just using yeah pennies and pieces of paper and uh, quickly drawn maps and things like that i don't think i'll ever get down to the point where i'm using like a grid and drawing everything to scale if i'm if i'm going to be running a dungeon it uh, like a self-enclosed dungeon and the adventure is is not likely to range too far from that i do like drawing out a map there's this i think they're a local group in west michigan that make these like rolls of grid paper i love just the like tactile experience of mm-hmm. unfurling that and i and i have drawn at least a rough layout of the dungeon on it for players to fill in as they travel. I love just unrolling that in front of everybody. It feels like Gandalf unrolling the map to Smog's uh, lair or something like that. But that takes, you know, that can take a fair amount of time. So I don't always, I definitely don't always do that. But. You sound like a better GM than I am. <laughs> right. uh, I haven't done a big map, but... For one dungeon, I, I did, like, the whole grid layout of it. And, like, we used, like, the D4 to, like, mark where the characters were. Like, the only other thing was, like, one time I needed, like, a prop because someone was, like, giving someone something. So I, like, wrote out the mm-hmm. letter, lit that corner on fire or whatever, and then, like, oh, nice. made it look all yeah. distressed and gave it to them. So that was the only other time I, like, really put a lot of, like, effort into, like here's the thing how about uh do you guys do a lot of in between game interaction with players like do you have bookkeeping that you do in between games are you emailing people to tell them their xp and to discuss with them what they're doing in between adventures or or do you pretty much radio silence until game night somewhat if there's a rules thing that's easier to handle you know, over email or honestly Slack these days. It's just, yeah, sometimes we'll do that. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, yeah, it's just radio silence. Mostly because, like, if we're going to play the game, I'd rather just play the game then, not in fits and starts throughout the week. Yeah, if there's, like, a character background thing that might affect the story, I would definitely, like, text that person. Otherwise, it's pretty, like, radio silence. Unless someone is, like, texting me, harassing me about whatever happened last <laughs> week. <laughs> Do you do that, Andy? Do you do you keep up with people? Not too much, but it's partly because I'm kind of a disorganized person that forgets to do this. For one of the games I run intermittently, I have a private Facebook group that um, gets used to 
post occasional like here's what's going on here's a reminder of what happened last session and that takes a little bit of time to write up but it's not a significant time investment i do kind of like the idea of especially since i tend to run games separated by a couple of weeks it's not like a daily or weekly thing so i do think that in theory it would be really nice to be checking in with everybody um, periodically in between game sessions but in reality i forget to do that and get busy and then it doesn't happen so but that's sort of an aspirational (laughs) aspirational. there's a slack channel for my for my lunch game and they've recently started trying to discuss some like tactics and strategy beforehand and it takes a lot for me not to jump in there and be like that's a bad idea (laughs) that's like a gold or like okay great i guess i'm gonna have to shift this whole yeah (laughs) my players started a group chat that specifically didn't have me on it at one point because (laughs) they wanted to like discuss tactics and like didn't want me to know yeah the snake cult and then strahd like really got to them (laughs) all right well i think we should wrap things up here we've said kind of a lot about preparation and our lack thereof (laughs) (laughs) here and there it's the the dirty secret of all gms is they want to prep more than they do but yeah so uh audrey so we we've talked about this topic and what we'd love to do is replace this with a another topic so if you have anything that you want to add so some other poor soul has to talk about we can add it to the, the list uh yeah i have an idea which is my favorite thing to talk about which is monsters like how you use them i just like Monster manuals are my favorite thing because I think it's really easy to build adventures off of monsters and also like who doesn't have a favorite monster. So Audrey, I've got to ask, do you do the thing when you get acquire a purchased module of any sort of flipping to the end to see what like the monster at the end is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm like straight to the monsters. I will flip through the book, too, because they they do have the stats all at the end now. But I like flipping through because they have the adventure pictures and I like looking at those and seeing what monsters they have in those. So, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Well, yeah, we'll add that to the table. And uh, Audrey, do you you have a lot going on with your library programs and whatnot? Do you have anything that you want to plug or or mention that you can either mention here or we'll put in the show notes? Yeah, absolutely. It's all library stuff, all library stuff. So Murder Mystery (laughs) Part 2 is going to be in October. The the in-between part two is going to be in the spring sometime. I don't have an official date yet. I got the library. I'm a librarian, and I got money to start an RPG manual collection. So that's going to drop into the library probably late June. (laughs) If you live in the Ann Arbor area, come check it out. Because if you guys check out books, I'll be able to get more books. (laughs) Well, if it helps, I had Horde of the Dragon Queen checked out for like three months. So (laughs) That was me too. I was like, we need to have D&D books in our collection. They're so expensive. And it worked. And in September, September 14th, my coworker and I are talking about doing an RPG day uh, at the library. So it'll be like a bunch of little like, basically the chance to come in and and try different uh, RPG systems with different GMs and paint your own miniature. Sounds almost like a miniature convention. Yeah, that's kind of what we were aiming for. But our library does a bunch of huge events. So we were like, we're very committed to this being like a medium sized event instead of like gigantic. Well, that's, uh, that's spectacular. Where would someone go to find out what, like, what programs are going on in the Ann Arbor area? For the library specifically, aadl.org. We've got an events page that has all of our big stuff coming up or our Facebook page. Or Instagram page. I, I should have asked this earlier, but do you have people, speaking of library events, do you have people coming in and like reserving space in the library to run their own games? Not right now that I know of. We only have a couple rooms that people can like book like that. Um, we are working on uh, expanding 
spaces like that to all of our branches. So when Mallet's Creek opens up, which is one of our branches, um, it's reopening after being under construction uh, for a couple weeks. That's going to have bookable meeting rooms in it. And we're working on bringing that to all the branches. So I think the goal is after like 20, the end of 2019, maybe 2020, all of the library branches should have bookable rooms if people want to use the library for that purpose. That's super great. Yeah, I'm excited for that September event. Hopefully that, that happens. Yeah. That sounds great. It, uh, we're working on partnering with Vault of Midnight. So it's, we're just starting mm-hmm. to plan it, but it'll come together. <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on. This was really delightful. We'll have to have you back sometime. Yeah, that would be great. I had a great time. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, it sounds kind of like a threat when Chris says it like that. Uh, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You will be required. No, no. If you, you want to, you can come back sometime. You've been a guest um, you must always return. Yes. All right, well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I've been Chris Salzman. I've been Andy Rao. And remember, if your players are having fun, you're a great GM. Bye.